Well, good morning. My name is Adam. If we haven't met, I'm part of the team here at Oasis Church, and it's great to be with you today. Let me say as well to the kids, it's great to have you with us today. You are as much a part of our church family as the adults. Now, I hope that you've got your sermon sheet there with you. Make sure you fill it out so you can bring it down to the front after the service and get a lolly from Caroline. Make sure you check with your parents, uh, though, before you uh, come down. We won't be held responsible for any hyped-up children. (laughs) Today, uh, we're kicking off a new, uh, short, three-week sermon series called Tempted and Tried. For the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapters 3 and 4. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Matthew, the book of Matthew, is what we call a gospel. Uh, There are four of them in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A gospel is very simply an account of Jesus' life and ministry. And and the reason that uh, Matthew is called Matthew is because it was written by a man named Matthew. He was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And the purpose of these two chapters that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks is to introduce us to Jesus. Matthew writes these chapters near the beginning of his gospel, and he wants to tell us who Jesus is and why he came. And today we're going to be looking at chapter 3. Now, let me set it up by uh, this way, by telling you that uh, last year, for about a six-month period, my wife, Molly, and I really got into the game Wordle. Now, maybe you did as well. Maybe you're still into Wordle. What's Wordle? Well, it's an online game where you have six attempts to guess a five-letter word, and each guess gives you feedback on the letters that you've chosen. Now, Wordle took the world by storm during 2022. It was invented uh, by a man named Josh Wardle, which is kind of where the the name comes from, uh, in October 2021. He actually created it for his wife to play during lockdown, but he decided to to post it online as well. Now, it didn't really take off uh, until someone posted it on Twitter in December 2021. And within just a couple of months, Wordle went from about 90 people playing it every day to more than 2 million daily users. Wordle kind of took the world by storm. Now, maybe unlike Molly and I, you didn't get into Wordle, but maybe you've been caught up in some other fads and crazes over the years. Maybe in the 60s, you had one of these, a lava lamp. Or maybe in the 70s, you wore these. (laughs) Loud and proud, Mark. I'm sure you rocked them, mate. Bell bottoms. Maybe in the 80s, you owned some of these. Horrifying, if you ask me. Cabbage patch dolls. Maybe if you're a 90s kid uh, like me, you owned one of these, a Tamagotchi. If you were a Christian in the early 2000s, you almost definitely had one of these on your wrist. (laughs) WWJD band, what would Jesus do? 
Maybe uh, more recently you've participated in the ice bucket challenge. Does anyone remember that? Uh, Maybe you played with a fidget spinner. Or maybe you're still playing Pokemon Go. I think our former youth pastor is still playing it. All of these fads and crazes which have taken the world by storm. Now the reason I bring it up is because in Matthew chapter 3, there is an ancient version of a craze that is sweeping the world. That the message of John the Baptist has gone viral in Judea. Look again at at Matthew chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so this man named John the Baptist was a preacher. But he wasn't your typical preacher. For starters, he didn't preach where you would expect him to. He didn't preach in Jerusalem, which was the main city with the most people at that time. He didn't even preach in a building. He was out in the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere. He also didn't look like other preachers. Verse 4 tells us that his clothes were made out of camel's hair which I'm sure would have been a little bit itchy and scratchy and not very comfortable. It also tells us that he ate locusts, kind of like grasshoppers and wild honey. Now, kids, have you ever eaten a grasshopper? I'm certain some of you probably have. (laughs) I've seen the things my kids put in their mouth. Now, I'm sure John was probably dipping the the locust in the honey just to, to make them taste a little bit better. John the Baptist was not your typical preacher, but he was the most popular preacher of his day. People flocked from all over to come and listen to him. Look at verse 5. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. People are coming from everywhere. Even the VIPs, the important people, are coming to listen to John. Verse 7 tells us that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that the political and the religious elite, they're coming out to listen to John. He was the most popular preacher in his day. Did you know that John was also the only preacher that Jesus ever endorsed? A bit later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says about John the Baptist, he says, truly I tell you, Among those born of women, all of us, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Jesus thought John the Baptist was great. Now the question is, why? What was so great about John the Baptist? What made him so popular? Why were people flocking to him and why did Jesus endorse him? And the answer is his message. It's what he had to say. You know, there's lots of reasons that a preacher might be popular. He might be really funny, might tell lots of interesting stories. He might be really charismatic. Unfortunately for you, I am zero out of three on that list. But what should make a Christian Christian preacher popular is their message. It's what they have to say about God. And this is what led people to John. This is what led Jesus to endorse John. It was his 
message. And what we're going to do uh, for the rest of our time together is we're going to look at the message of John the Baptist. What did he have to say and why does it matter so much? And because we have the kids with us today, I want to uh, make it as simple as I can. We're going to look at the message of John the Baptist under two simple headings. They're this, God is coming, get ready. Kids, you, you might want to write that down on your sermon sheet. God is coming, get ready. So let's look at these two things together. The first part of John the Baptist's message is God is coming. Now, a few years ago, I uh, traveled to Washington, D.C., in the United States. Washington, D.C. is the capital of the United States. It's where all of the government officials and the politicians are. And there were a couple of occasions while I was in Washington, D.C., that I was uh, walking through the city, and this police motorcade came sweeping through the street. Uh, They had their lights flashing, their sirens blaring, and everyone is kind of scurrying off the road. And then just a a few moments later, there would be this procession of big black cars. Their lights were flashing and they were full of security and all kinds of officials. And then eventually there would be this car with the American flag kind of waving on the front. And presumably it held a high-ranking official. I liked to imagine it was the president. Saluted every time we went past. Probably some random senator. Now, the point is that the road was cleared. The way was made open for for this dignitary. And this is kind of what John the Baptist is doing. He is clearing the road. He is preparing the way for the arrival of someone very, very special. Look again at what he says, verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness, saying, repent, repent. Now, we'll look at that in a moment. That's what John wants us to do. But first, there's something we need to know. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of God is arriving. In other words, God is coming. Now, this is a big announcement, isn't it? You know, it's one thing to hear the president is coming. It's another thing entirely to hear that God is coming. And presumably, this is why so many people flocked to hear John. It was a big announcement. But this was also an anticipated announcement. This was an announcement that was a long time coming. The the, the people of God, the nation of Israel, they had been waiting for hundreds of years to hear this news. The promise that God would send a saviour. It ran through the Old Testament like a thread including this promise in Isaiah 40. You can see it on the screen. Hundreds of years earlier, the the prophet Isaiah wrote, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. The people of God had been reading this promise for hundreds of years. They'd been waiting for hundreds of years for this voice in the wilderness that would call out, he's coming. He's on his way. Get ready. And Matthew says that that voice is John the Baptist. 
Look at verse 3. Matthew writes, This is he, referring to John the Baptist. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist is John the preparer, John the pointer, John the voice. His message is that God is coming. Now this leaves us with a question, doesn't it? Okay, God is coming. What do I do? How do I prepare? Reminds me of a story that I've I've told you before about a lady that lived in Scotland near Balmoral Castle, one of the Queen of England's favourite places to holiday. Now, this lady's family who lived next door to Balmoral Castle, they were invited to the annual Balmoral Ball. You can probably imagine what what that would have been like. Uh, And at this ball, uh, they actually met the Queen and the royal family. And they got on so well that a a little while later, this lady received a, a letter in the mail saying the royal family and the Queen of England would like to come to her house for tea. Now, can you imagine if you received that uh, invitation or that request in the mail? Can you imagine how you would prepare for the queen to come to your house? You would be cleaning and cooking and shopping and scrubbing and dusting. And that's just the queen of England. What about the God of the universe? What about the king of kings? This leads us to the second part of John's message. Firstly, he says, God is coming. Second, he says, get ready. Now, obviously, this is a simplified version of what John says. Obviously, he says more than just get ready. He actually wants us to get ready in a specific way. He wants us to prepare with a particular response. And it's more than just dusting the china and making some scones. It's a preparation of our hearts. It's a reorientation of our entire lives. This is what John means when he announces and he begins his message with the word repent. This is the response that he wants from us. This is how we prepare for God's arrival. We repent. Now, what does it look like? What does it mean to repent? What is repentance? Well, repentance means to turn around. It means to change your mind. It means to change your direction. Uh, Repentance is like the sign on the ramp to the highway that says, wrong way, go back. If you've ever been driving and seen one of those signs staring you in the face, you're about to do something very unfortunate. Here's the way that Michael Horton, a theologian, defines repentance. Listen to this carefully. Repentance, he says, is not modifying a few convictions here and there, but realizing that your whole interpretation of reality, God, yourself, your relation to God and the world, is misguided. It is not finding your way back to the straight and narrow after wandering off the beaten path a bit. But it is acknowledging before God that you are not and never have been, even in the vicinity. You saw yourself at the center of the universe, but now you realize that you exist for God's pleasure and glory. 
And that changes how you look at everything. Listen to this. The right to determine for yourself what you believe and how you will live is surrendered. That's repentance. According to John the Baptist, according to Jesus, according to the rest of the Bible, humanity is heading in the wrong direction. We are heading away from God, which means if we are going to prepare for God's arrival, we need to turn around. We need to start heading towards God. And this is the message of John the Baptist. Stop running away from God, run towards him. Stop living apart from God, submit yourself to him. Now the question is, what does this actually look like? If repentance means to turn around, what does this look like in practice? How do we actually do this? Well, we're given two insights in this passage. The first is this. Repentance begins with confession of sin. Repentance begins with confession of sin. This is what people were doing when they came out to John in the wilderness. Look at verse 6. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. Repentance begins with the honest acknowledgement, I have turned away from God. I have lived apart from God. I have ignored God. I have been rebellious. I need forgiveness. I need mercy. Now this doesn't come very naturally to us, does it? We don't like to admit that we're wrong. We don't like to admit that we need help. We like to blame others. We like to excuse ourselves. Kids, I'm sure you haven't, but you know, have you ever done something wrong and then blamed someone else for your choices and your decisions? Maybe you hit one of your siblings and when confronted, you said, well, they took my toy. Maybe you took a chocolate from the pantry that mum had told you not to take. And when confronted, you said, well, they took one first. Blaming others for your choices and your decisions. Let me let you in on a secret. Us adults do this as well. We blame others. We excuse ourselves. And we do this in our relationship with God. And John is saying, if we want a relationship with God, it begins with us being honest about ourselves, admitting that we fall short. It begins with confession of sin. Now, why does a relationship with God begin this way? Why does it begin with this confession? Does God want to embarrass us? Does God want to shame us? The answer is no, God wants to forgive us. This is what's happening as as people are going out to, to John in the wilderness. You see, after they confessed their sins, look at what happened. They were baptized by him in the River Jordan. Now this baptism is a picture of being washed. It's a picture of being cleansed. These people were coming to John and they were admitting, I'm sinful and I need to wash my life clean. I heard about a man recently and he'd made some terrible choices in life and he said, I wish I could put my whole life in a washing machine 
and get it all clean. This is what God's saviour would do. He would wash us, not just on the outside, but from the inside out. This is what John means when he says in verse 11, I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I. I can't even carry his sandals. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's saying Jesus will not just wash us on the outside, Jesus will renew us from the inside out. He will give us the Holy Spirit. He will cleanse us from sin. He will change our hearts. He will transform our lives from the inside out. And this leads us to the second insight about repentance. The first is that repentance begins with confession of sin. The second is that repentance leads to a changed life. You know, I told you that John's preaching had become so popular that even the VIPs were coming to him, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Now, surely it must have been tempting for John to pander to them. You know, here he was, a big shot. Even the VIPs, the politicians, the the leaders, they're coming to listen to him. Maybe he would let them kind of go to the front of the line for baptism. Maybe he'd give them front row seats. Maybe he'd give them the gourmet locusts for lunch. Not quite. Look at what he says, verse 7. You brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Evidently, John didn't have a problem with people pleasing. Now, what was the problem? Why did John react so strongly? Why did he get so angry with these religious leaders? And the answer is that their repentance wasn't sincere. They were playing games. They were were coming out to to listen to John. They, they They were coming to hear John, but they were just going through the motions. They were there because John was the latest big thing. Their hearts weren't really in it. They didn't really mean it. Now, how do we know? Because it didn't really change their lives. It didn't bear any fruit in their lives. That's why John says to them in verse 8, produce fruit in keeping with sincere repentance. It's not actual fruit. This is the fruit of good works. This is the fruit of changed behavior. In other words, John is saying to them, going through the motions of baptism isn't enough. Real repentance will mean a changed heart and a changed life. Real repentance is not a one-off moment. Real repentance is a lifetime of life change. You see, repentance begins with confession of sin, which leads to forgiveness of sin, which leads to a changed heart and life. Now, let me be be very, very clear on this. Kids, I want you to be very, very clear on this. Our good works do not make us right with God. Our good works can never make us right with God. You know, I have this little liturgy that I uh, use with my kids at, at, at bedtime. Uh, I got it from someone else, so I can't claim it as mine, but most nights before I uh, kiss them goodnight, I'll, I'll look them in the eyes and I'll say to them, do you know that I love you? And they'll say, yes. And I'll say, do you know that I'll love you no matter the good things you do? And they'll say, yes. And I'll say, do you know that I'll love you no matter the bad things you do? And they say, yes. And then I'll say, 
Who else loves you like that? And the response is God. Normally after they've given a long list of extended family members as well. (laughs) This is how God loves us. Despite our sin and evil, apart from our good works, he has saved us because of his great mercy, Titus 3. Our good works do not make us right with God. But it's equally true that good works will be found in the one who is right with God. That faith will always bear fruit. Faith is the tree and good works are the fruit. Or as Ray Galea puts it, faith and good works are like conjoined twins who share the same heart. That they're distinct, but they belong together. Faith will lead to good works. Good works are the fruit of faith. And this was the problem for these religious leaders. They had good works. They were very moral, very religious. They were very committed to God's law. But they had no faith. They had no sincere repentance. They could not admit their own sin and guilt before God. Now why? What was the problem? Look at verse 9. John says to them, And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. John says, I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Their problem was their religious pride. It was their misplaced faith. They had placed their trust in their national identity, their religious identity. They were saying, I'm a Jew. I'm a child of Abraham. Therefore, I'm a child of God. And John's saying, not so fast. Now, you can see how we are still tempted to this kind of thinking today, can't you? You know, we we think, because I am X, Y, Z, I'm a child of God. Because I am reformed. Because I am an Anglican, a Presbyterian, a Baptist. Because I've been baptized. Because I've been catechized. Because I'm a pastor or an elder. Because I'm a youth group leader or a life group leader. Because I give to church. Because I go to church. On and on we could go. We are still tempted to misplace our faith. To not place our faith solely in Christ alone, but to place our faith on a a position we have, or a place we go to, or a past event. Let me speak to the, the kids for just a moment, perhaps especially the older kids. You know, you cannot rely on your parents' faith in Jesus. You know, it's a great blessing to have parents who love and trust Jesus. It makes you a member of the covenant community of faith. It involves you in the activities of God's people. It exposes you to the promises of God. But as we say when you're baptized, you must claim those promises for yourself. You must respond to the message of Jesus for yourself. And so you need to ask yourself, am I... Believing in Jesus? Have I repented? Am I trusting in him and in him alone? Talk to your parents about it. Talk to your youth group leaders, your your children's uh, leaders. Am I trusting in Jesus? 
We're not saved, made right with God by anyone or anything other than Jesus. And in fact, this is what the final part of the passage is all about. You know, John must have got the shock of his life the day that he's out there in the wilderness preaching and he looks up and he sees Jesus coming towards him. He probably wondered, why is he coming? Maybe he's coming to encourage me. You know, you're doing a great job, John. Maybe to lecture me. Oh, you could change your message a little bit, John. Maybe to bring the judgment that that John had been preaching about. I'm sure he got the shock of his life when Jesus asked to be baptized. In fact, this is why John tries to dissuade him. He says, no, 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 you need to baptize me. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, why would Jesus be baptized? Why should Jesus join the queue of sinners? He has nothing to repent of. He has no sins to wash away. Jesus joining the queue for baptism, it'd be kind of like being at a Beatles concert. And you turn around and you see Paul McCartney standing in line behind you. You don't have to wait in line. Why is Jesus being baptized? The answer, he joins the queue of sinners because he came for sinners. He's humbly identifying with those he came to save. He's taking our place, stepping into our position, stepping into our shoes. Let me explain it to you this way, and it's a sport illustration, I'm sorry. A few years ago, uh, the, the Brisbane Broncos finished dead last. We won the wooden spoon for the first time ever. Now, not long after that, we signed Adam Reynolds to play for us. He was the playmaker that we desperately needed. And we signed him halfway through the year in 2021. And I just remember waiting and waiting for the end of the year to finally see Adam Reynolds in a Brisbane Broncos jersey. Because it would finally mean that he was one of us. That he'd come to play for us, to fight for us, to go to battle for us. And when Jesus was baptised, it's like he was putting on our jersey. He was willing to be identified with us. The down and outs, the lost, the last and the least. It's as if he's saying, I came for them. I came to fight for them. I came to go to battle for them, which he would ultimately do on the cross when he literally stood in our place for our sin, bearing our judgment so that we could be given the gift of his life and his light and his righteousness, so that we could be given his status as a son or daughter of God. In fact, look at what happens when Jesus is baptized. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. When Jesus steps into the place of sinners, the Father says, This is my Son. This is why he came. The beloved son of God left the glory of heaven to come to earth to stand in the place of sinners so that sinners could stand in his place in heaven. So that we could be given his status as a son or daughter of God. 
So the question is, are you living your life in light of this good news? Is there fruit in keeping with repentance in your life? Is your life being changed by the goodness and the grace of Jesus? Or or are you playing games? Are you going through the motions? Don't play games any longer. Have you repented? Have you turned around? Have you trusted Christ and received what he gives? Don't put it off any longer. God is coming. Get ready. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus, who left the glory of heaven to stand in our place for our sin on the cross so that one day we might stand with him in your presence. Thank you that he so humbly identified with us, came for us, to fight for us, to go into battle for us. And so, Lord, as we go forward, help us to live our lives, not trying to earn the victory, but living our lives in light of the victory of our champion. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.